Okay. Yeah. So there's two books that are similar in this series. One is basically how to be a healthy church member. And this one is church membership. And the reason I want to do this one at the moment instead of the other one is because um, this gets into more of the background and purposes and all that behind church membership. And I think it's going to be helpful background for us thinking about bylaws and so forth. So um, as we continue to work toward that goal. So um, this is actually a, I don't know if it's a summary or he also wrote another book called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love about church discipline. That one's like 250, 300 pages. This one's a little bit more accessible because it's only 120 some. So um, I'm not necessarily going to have everybody have a copy of this, but I'm going to have quotes from it and we'll just kind of walk through it. Um, if enough people are interested, I'm not opposed to ordering some, but for right now. What's that? Like through Amazon? I think so. Typically there are, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you didn't get a handout, the handouts are here on the back table. So here's his, uh, here's his background. Um, he says, you don't really want to read about a book about church membership. I understand. Maybe someone gave it to you. Maybe you wonder if it would be useful for others. But honestly, the topic of church membership does not seem terribly interesting. You became a Christian and you join a church. That's about it, right? Sometimes church membership involves programmatic elements, such as classes and an interview, and the topic gets entangled with questions about the Lord's Supper and baptism. But beyond all this, is there much to discuss? And he says, is it a big deal or not? There's a few who say it's necessary and a few who say it's optional, but the majority of Christian folk, I assume, are somewhere in between. They have a vague sense Christians should be involved with a local church, but they'd also say it's not the most important thing in the world, so we shouldn't make too big a deal about it. If Christians spend several years hopping from church to church, or if they decide to attend one church indefinitely without joining, that's okay too. Uh, and then he comes down a little bit later and he says, I want to answer a question that you are not asking, but should be asking. My primary purpose is to show you what church membership is, because it's not what you think it is. Membership in the Bible is an astounding reality. Aren't you just a little bit curious? And then he's, the first chapter is titled, We've Been Approaching It All Wrong. And he starts out with the discussion of the word imperium. He said, I recently discovered this word. It's not a word you pull out while chatting with friends over coffee. It's what you get when you turn imperial, a word you might hear in coffee time conversations, into a noun. Imperium means supreme power or absolute dominion, and it gets at the idea of where the buck stops in a society. So he talks about what's the highest authority in our daily lives. It would probably be government is generally what we would look at as the highest authority in our daily lives for the average person just thinking about all of the authority structures. Uh, because you have a boss, but usually there's somebody higher than your boss. You might have uh, all these other sorts of things, but if you want to uh, build a shed on your property, if you have to pay taxes, all of that gets factored into the fact that the government has authority over various aspects of your life. His point in this chapter is that Jesus has imperium. And then he connects this, uh, first of all, with some potentially typical but often wrong views of the church. So we see the first idea here is the idea of it being a voluntary association. And so an example of this would be Sam's Club, Costco, BJ's Warehouse, one of these places. You go, you get a membership, you pay a certain amount of money, and as long as you pay the dues, you're a part of the group, right? Or maybe even something that's not a, um, not a 
like a business, but a group that you're a part of, a soccer group. Like you're going to play a soccer, you're part of a soccer league or a softball league or something like that. Um, you're part of some kind of organization that volunteers in the community. These are all voluntary things that you join and become a part of. And on the face of it, it looks like that's what is going on with the church because you approach the church, you say, I want to join, and now you're a part of this group. But his point is that there's more to it than that. The second example is this idea of a service provider. Um, you go to the mechanic to get your car fixed. You go to the dentist to get your teeth fixed. You go to whatever, and the list goes on. You go to a place, they provide a service, and then you leave. The irony of it is, what do we call when we gather? We call it a service, right? So it's easy for us to get confused and think that gathering at church is primarily about coming in, getting a tune-up, and then going and doing whatever the rest of the week. Um, he says, our hearts are living things, and therefore, well, that's a random phrase that was from the old notes that I copied this from. Never mind, ignore that part. Um, third one, friendly group. This would be, hey, we got a group of friends, we're just getting together to chat and hang out, we just like being with each other, spending time together. And again, this sounds uh, promising because there's things that we do at church that sound like that. So after the morning service, we're going to, many of us, stay and, and have lunch together. And that sounds like just a group of friends or acquaintances or people that know each other hanging out and having a good time. But there's more to it than that. So how have you thought about the church at various points in your life? These three pictures, maybe something else. Any, any thoughts or feedback on that? Bob? It's more like a, an exclusive club. Like okay, an exclusive. To to get into it. Like a country club. <laughs> okay. So not, not Sam's Club for the plebeians, but uh, what else? Other thoughts that we've had at different points in our lives about what church is? Okay, a dating club, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, what else? Yes, Jonathan. When I was growing up, even into my uh, know, teens and young adult, it was kind of like a second family. Okay. Yeah, so an idea of a family. And I think that's getting closer to the biblical picture. Um, he talks then about some of the symptoms of our wrong thinking about the church. And so, uh, let me read a couple that aren't here. Christians can think it's fine to attend a church indefinitely without joining. I don't think that's where any of you are at, but that's what a lot of people think. Christians think of getting baptized apart from joining. Christians take the Lord's Supper without joining. Christians view the Lord's Supper as their own private mystical experience for Christians and not an activity for church members who are incorporated into body life together. And then the ones that are on your sheet. Christians don't integrate their Monday to Saturday lives with their lives of other saints. I understand there's challenges to that because of distance and work and all those sorts of things, but it's something to consider. Um, Christians assume they can make a perpetual habit of being absent from the church's gathering a few Sundays a month or more. This one is interesting. Christians make major life decisions, moving, accepting a promotion, choosing a spouse, etc., without considering the effects of those decisions on the family of relationships in the church or without consulting the wisdom of the church's pastors and other members. Christians buy home and homes or rent apartments with scant regard for how factors like distance and cost will affect their abilities to serve their church. And then Christians don't realize they're partly responsible for both the spiritual welfare 
and the physical livelihood of the other members of their church, even members they have not met. When one mourns, one mourns by himself. When one rejoices, one rejoices by herself. Okay? Any thoughts on these um, as being symptoms of wrong thinking about the church? I mean, I think some of them are obvious. We'd say, well, if you don't really have any commitment and you just attend for years and years and years and you never want to actually get connected and do anything at the church, I think we'd recognize that as a problem. But what about some of these other ones? What about this one where he says, making major life decisions without considering how it affects your church? That seems kind of nosy and intrusive, right? Okay, let's talk about that. Why, why, is that, why does that matter in connection with church membership? Okay. And if a major person leaves, which over the 45 years I've been here, I've seen major people leave and how it affects the church. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What, um, what about, I mean, if you, I'm sure not, this has never happened to anybody, but what if you get into an argument with one of your brothers or sisters, if you have brothers or sisters, or parents, or kids? Does that then affect the whole family? Yeah, so, so all of these things that we do have impact on the unity of the church, so that's part of the reason. Anything? Financial issues. Financial issues. Yeah. Financial issues. Financial issues. Explain that one, what you're thinking. Well, if you, if you lose members that were tithing, okay. the finances of the church could be, you see a lot of churches go under for that very reason. Okay, yeah, so... Um, if, if, so how this might play out, let's say somebody says, hey, I wish that there was a youth group of 40 kids for my kids, and this small church doesn't have you know, a youth group that's doing 5,000 things a year, um, so we're going to leave and go to one that does. The irony is there's, there's sort of this curve of small churches don't have programs because they don't have enough people, and then people come in and say, well, we want programs for our kids, but we're not going to be here, so then there's not enough people to get, so it's just kind of a, a perpetuating problem. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing anything of where our church is at. I'm just saying this is a typical issue that smaller churches have of, you know, in a church of 500, there can be 400 people that aren't doing anything. In a church of 50, everybody's really got to do something for things to work well, right? So, uh, so there's that whole dynamic. Um, what about this integrating Monday to Saturday lives idea? That one's kind of tricky, right? Because you, you work, potentially, or you have responsibilities, and, and then when you don't have responsibilities, you say, well, I'd like to be, um, uh, you know, have free time and do something that I like doing on my own, right? Maybe you think that. Um, what, what do we think about this idea of integrating Monday to Saturday lives? Well, what does that look like? So I don't think it has to look like necessarily having everyone in the church over to your house every week, although that's maybe one example of, not everyone every week, but maybe hospitality and having people over is one example of it. But, but what are other examples of this integrating life idea? Just, I mean, obviously it could be recreation. Okay. It could be you know, getting together for lunch or coffee. Yeah. It could be... Yeah, I don't know. I, I think about it. <clears throat> Obviously, in in our ch well, so the church as a whole is made up of a bunch of people that have nothing 
but Christ in common, mm. at least primarily Christ in common. Sure. Because all different backgrounds, neighborhoods, all that type of thing. And so, yeah, the, the challenge seems to be to develop those relationships so that there's more things being done than just Sunday, Wednesday, and other church scheduled functions. Sure. So, I mean, I think one of the things it could be is it could be as simple as saying, hey, I'm doing this project at my house. Do you want to come over and, and help me with it? Not to bum free labor off people, but just to have the opportunity to come talk to them, right? Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, I've seen some examples of this when different people have moved. We've come alongside, and it's been hard work, but it's been good at good times of just spending time with each other, too, right? Um, so... Just trying to think through those kinds of things. I think, like Bob was saying, one of the big hurdles is getting it going because there's questions of logistics, distance, cost, do I have enough room in my house for X number of people to come over, all these sorts of things, right? And so um, I think we tend to, at least, I mean, I, this is probably something I struggle with, it's easy to sort of say, well, we could do this, 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 or this. Here's all the reasons not to because of why it's going to be challenging. And so then we end up not doing it. Instead of saying, these are not insurmountable problems, they are just things to work through, right? Bob? Just thinking about conversations that we've had in the past mm -hmm. where every member has some type of uh, hobby or talent or skills that they... Um, are passionate about that they could be able to teach yeah and just trying to incorporate that a little bit more like I was thinking because Bruce you work on bikes right yep I mean I can teach how to fix bikes too yeah I mean that would be a great thing for many people yeah the kids and you know the adults with kids to learn sure so doing stuff like that yeah figuring out what talents people have just to incorporate more of a time together. Yeah. That'd be Robert. Oh, <clears throat> well just thinking that beyond programming and stuff like that, it's it's an interesting thing that <coughs> whether in the church or those who don't know the Lord always talk about being isolated or and then so a simple answer is to get together. Right. Yeah. It's like so there's something interesting about that. Yeah. I, yeah, so and I'm not trying to make the focus about me, but I think it's easy to say, like in my circumstance, to say, well, I feel, I feel alone, right? And there's a degree to which I think in connection with the church, there ought to be ministry of people in the church to the person who feels alone. But there also has to be a degree of initiation on that person's part, because someone can offer and offer and offer if the person just is always saying, I'm lonely, I have nothing to do, I don't, I don't ever see anybody. At some point you say, well, are you actually interested in solving this or not? And so it's, uh, I think there's a verse that the one who has friends has to show himself friendly. You know, that sort of idea. And basically that it's both parties have to be involved. It shouldn't just be a one-way kind of a thing. Um, okay, moving on then. Uh, the local church is the authority on earth that Jesus has instituted to officially affirm and give shape to my Christian life and yours. So going back to this idea of imperium, 
God has ultimate authority. And as much as we see the state often as the highest authority in our daily lives, ultimately the highest authority in our daily lives is God. And so if Jesus has imperium, Jesus has rule, Jesus has dominion, and Jesus works through the church, then the local church is the highest authority in our lives, particularly when it comes to affirming and directing, shaping our daily Christian lives. And this is where I think we start to depart from this idea of it just being a voluntary association or just being a gathering of people who enjoy one another's company or just being a place where things happen that are good for us to being something that our lives are oriented around because it's the way through which God is ministering to the world. And having made the commitment to it, it's not something to be cast aside lightly. Now, there are parallels between commitment to the church and marriage, for example. They're not identical because uh, I think there is a time and a place for someone to move from a church due to work necessities or things that are going on in their family or whatever else. Like, let's say you had an elderly parent that was eight hours away and you say, I got to go help this person. There's a time and a place for someone saying, I'm going to leave the church for that reason. But the parallel where it's similar to marriage is it's got to be a much bigger deal than just, I had somebody say one time, hey, I was upset because you guys sang this hymn with this tune instead of the other tune. It's a really petty thing. You shouldn't leave a church because you didn't like the way that someone's saying one particular hymn. Or you shouldn't leave the church because you say, well, so-and-so said one mean thing to me one time. That's going to happen in life, right? Uh, now, obviously, there's somewhere between one-time incidents and constant things that are frustrations and difficulties. My point is, our, our responsibility to the church is a significant and serious commitment, not something just sort of float in and out of. Yes? There's one thing I, I mentioned that we got to think about, too. That when we have people come through the door yeah. for the first time, yeah. and you have to know and find out if they're saved or not, mm -hmm. and how the congregation approaches those people to try to make them feel comfortable mm -hmm. and, and know that they come to a place where if they've got problems, it can be talked through you. Sure. This is the first big barrier you've got to get in order to have a congregation that will grow. Yeah. And you usually grow. We know that none of us, some of us older people are not going to be here. To, who knows? Today, tomorrow, or 10 years from now. Right. So there will have to be new, younger people follow us. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely part of it is, is um, welcoming people as they come in. Um, yeah. Uh, another important idea that he is making here, or pointing out here, is um, he says, this means that when you open your Bible, stop looking for signs of a club with voluntary members. Look instead for a Lord and his bound together people. He gives this example. When people ask, where is membership in the Bible? They're looking for something like a club because the word membership is a club word. Clubs, political parties, and labor unions have memberships. But you don't often use the word membership in relation to governments and the cities of citizens of nations. You don't say, so how's the membership of the British nation doing? Aren't you guys running like 60 million members these days? 
Clubs begin with a point of common interest. Service providers begin with a common need or desire. Churches have all this, but they have something more, a king who requires the obedience of his people. The church begins with this fact, Jesus is Savior and Lord. He has died on the cross for the sins of everyone who would believe and follow him. So the church is interested in citizens of a kingdom, not club members, and talks about the church's unity with various metaphors, family, vine, etc. So look for a Lord and his bound together people. Look also for other forms of unity, brothers and sisters in a family, branches on a vine. So you're not going to find the word membership in the Bible, but what you do find is the idea of allegiance to God and to what he's doing in the world. You do find the imagery of a family or a building that's being built together or a plant that's all joined together, the vine, the field, the building, all of the, the family, all of these things are pictures that are used to describe people who are part of the, the eventual kingdom that God is building for himself. We have to be careful there. I mean, people get into arguments about whether the kingdom was, is, or is yet to come, and there's a sense in which Jesus has the right to rule and reign, but he's not yet set up a kingdom on earth. But we're calling people to a future kingdom. He has a fascinating thing to say on page uh, 28. He says, A local church is a real-life embassy set in the present that represents Christ's future kingdom and his coming universal church. So let me back up for a second and kind of explain this. Uh, there is a metaphor that replaces the club or service provider idea. It's the metaphor of an outpost or an assembly, or an embassy. He says, an embassy represents one place in another place of the globe. But what if I told you there's another kind of embassy, one that represents a place from the future? That's what the local church is. It represents the whole group of people under Christ's lordship who will gather at the end of history. So think about that for a minute. The local church is an embassy for Christ's future kingdom, if we're going to put it really simply. When we put it in those contexts, in that context, um, what are some of the differences between seeing it as a club versus an embassy? Let's start out with an easy one. How many times do you go to Costco and you see people with machine guns guarding the doors? <laughs> I mean, maybe if we're talking about one somewhere in another part of the world. But here, you go down to Costco, right? Sometimes they don't even check your card when you go in, right? No security. Yeah, so there's no security. Whereas an embassy, what do you have? You've got armed guards because it's a, an outpost of one nation in another nation that potentially could say, hey, you know, we don't really like you guys here. So there's a degree of, of security, okay? What else? What are some other differences between Costco and the American embassy in Yemen, for example? Rob? <clears throat> With membership in, uh, like Costco, there's a shared interest of saving money or getting large packages of something. Yeah. But in a nation or there's diversity that can be very great. Like in America, there's a, the church can be very diverse. One church can be very diverse. Okay. Types of interests or people. Okay. Yeah, so it's less about we all like the same thing. You know, four-gallon tubs of peanut butter or something. It's... Whatever country you're going into, you 
clear a passport, all that entrance. You're supposed to go right from there and report to the embassy mm. of your country. Yeah. That way they let, they let you know you're there and not have something happen. You, you take a taxi cab ride into some part of the country and, you, and they capture you and you disappear. Yeah. The embassy doesn't know where you're at, but they know that you're in that country. Right. That's their, their policy. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of interesting parallels about the gathering of the assembly being a respite from the dangers of the world, much like an embassy is a refuge from potential threats, to kind of building off what you're saying there, Bruce. And this idea of reporting. Well, right, yeah, and this idea of reporting, too, that's why membership is so important. If you don't report to the embassy, nobody knows what you're up to, right? Nobody can, as we'll get to in a moment, affirm your citizenship if you don't know anything about what's going on, okay? We'll, we'll, we'll keep building on that idea. Let's keep moving for sake of time. Um, the idea of church membership immediately follows. What's a church member? It's someone who walks through the embassy doors claiming to belong to the kingdom of Christ. Hello, my name is Christian. The embassy official, it's not on your page, just in case you're looking for it, taps a few keys on his computer and says, yep, I see your records here. Here's your passport. The individual can now enjoy many of the rights benefits and obligations of citizenship, even though living in a foreign land. But not only that, and here's the crazy part, the individual becomes part of the embassy itself, one of the officials who affirms and oversees others. To be a church member is to be the church, at least a part of it. Now, this is where I think this idea of affirming someone's testimony of faith becomes such a sticky issue. Let, we'll talk about that. That's actually the question I wrote there. He says, a church member is a person who has been officially and publicly recognized as a Christian before the nations, as well as someone who shares in the same authority of officially affirming and overseeing other Christians in his or her church. So, what's the difference between evaluating someone's testimony individually and affirming someone's profession for membership as a church and in the church? It's a difference between you saying so-and-so is a Christian and the church collectively saying this person is a Christian and a part of our assembly. What's the difference there, Bob? That's what I remember most about this book. Yeah. Is that just like the embassy, when somebody comes, they need to validate that you are actually a part to be able to give you that protection, to be able to give you that uh, security. Yeah. Same thing, same parallel, right? The church, the local church, part of the main responsibility is to be able to provide some type of validation yeah. that that person is a part. And that's, that's a very weighty thing. So what about if, um, why can't you just do that on your own? Why can't I walk up and be like, Retta, Retta's a Christian? Yeah, I know that Retta's a Christian. Or why doesn't it carry the same weight? Jonathan? Okay. The person by themselves may be a liar. Okay. Their, their testimony by itself may not be credible enough. Okay. If that person is like, you know, John MacArthur, everybody knows he's credible. Yeah. I mean, just the average person, you know, <laughs> right. we don't know that they're credible, so you need more than one. Ironically, I was at a group of people that was a pastor's fellowship who wasn't sure that John MacArthur had a credible testimony. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, they were like a very, like, yeah, anyways. Do we need to validate ourselves to this church for, for the community around us? Explain what you're asking a little more. Okay, validation in my terminology would be that I'm a part of this fellowship 
part of this church, okay, and that if somebody, I walk down the street, somebody asks me, do you go to that church? I can say yes. That is my church. I think that's, I, I think that's definitely part of it. I think the thing that I'm trying to get at here is this idea of what are the drawbacks of me individually saying Retta is a Christian without input from anyone else? That's the question I'm trying to get at, Bob. Some people are definitely a better judge of character. Okay. So just initial evaluations, but also having being able to see people who know them, people who have spent time with them. I think that's another aspect of it. Somebody can't just walk in, you know, this today and yeah. say, "Hey, I want to join the church." It's like, wait, we got it. We need to get to know you a little bit before we can do that. So yeah. How how in depth is that observation? Yeah, so let me let's build on this, Red. I hope you don't mind me, you know, using an example. How many times do I come over and and visit your house to see if you're, you know, getting drunk and getting in fights with your neighbors? I'm just I'm just throwing this out as an example. How often do I do that? I don't. Now I try to check up on you, right? But there's the reality that you could be straight up lying to me. I'm not saying you are, but you could be straight up lying to me and say, oh yeah, I love God, I read my Bible all the time, I pray all the time, but you're going out there and doing who knows what with all the people around you. Okay, Okay, Retta? But you, you, when you see all these polls that they do on who identifies as what, you, many majorities say they're a Christian. Right. But they don't attend a church. They don't belong to a church. They just say, I'm a Christian. Yeah. And anybody can say that. Right. You need proof. Yeah. So let me give you an illustration. Um, there, was a, there was a situation at a church that I was at before, and there was a lady who would stand up and give testimonies when we had testimony time, like at November when there was a Thanksgiving testimony time. She'd stand up and give testimonies. She wasn't at church for probably like three or four months, and so... I went to check on her, and the situation seemed like something was up, right? And there did need to be additional validation, because it shouldn't just be my assessment of it. But the situation was, there's somebody's car in her driveway that wasn't hers, and a guy answers the door at 7 in the morning or 8 whenever I went by. I think there's a reasonable assumption of what's going on there, right? So here's someone that's professing to be a Christian, but has a guy living with her. Right? If there's no contact, and if there's no contact by multiple people and touch points in our lives to evaluate all these sorts of things, we don't actually know what people are like because we can all be very deceptive. We can act, say the right words, look the right way, particularly on Sunday, and that's where it goes back to the Monday to Saturday thing. If we start slipping, but people only see us once a week or every other week, it's not going to be obvious. I mean, there were people, and this is one of the reasons I've had such a burden about some of these ideas, about both for the teens and also for adults, that we are not just going through the motions and saying stuff, but that we actually mean it and live it. There was a couple that was in a Sunday school class for, I probably was in sitting there near them for four years. All of a sudden it comes out that the guy had been running around with women and divorced his wife and leaves. That clearly wasn't something that happened overnight. Why did no one know it? And I think the pastor of the church knew it, but why was no one else involved enough in their lives to come? And maybe there were people that were, and I just wasn't one of them, but you would think that if there's real and actual connections between people, that you shouldn't be able to go years and years and years with stuff like that going on, and no one come alongside and say, hey, so, 
you know, there's probably been times when I've approached some of you and I've said, hey, let's go talk. Why? Because I'm trying to be proactive about this because it affects the unity of the church and because ultimately I have a responsibility before God. I can't keep you from sinning and walking away from the Lord, but I do have a responsibility before God to say, if, if something's going on with you, let's at least talk about it because I could be completely wrong. And there's also a sense in which you all have that responsibility for me because I'm not immune to sin and temptation and wandering away from God. So there's, there's got to be this, this connection. You are recognized by the embassy and you become part of the embassy that recognizes others. He builds on this on the next page and says, he says we'll talk about other things like the familiness, the bodiness, and the flockness of membership. Kind of funny way of saying it. But he says there's all these other pictures. We'll get to those later. But he says this, Christians don't join churches. They submit to them. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, we don't like the word submit because you can't tell me what to do. And second of all, submitting makes it sound like this is something that's not optional. Okay, well, let's think about this. Don't misunderstand. From the non-Christian standpoint, a local church is a voluntary association. No one has to join. From the standpoint of the Christian life, however, it's not. Once you choose Christ, you must choose his people too. It is a package deal. Choose the Father and the Son, and you have to choose the whole family, which you do through a local church. How does this differ from the way that we often think about membership? Not Maybe not you, but people that you know. Submission versus voluntary association. Bob? Also, in line with that, I think a lot of people look at it as church is something that I do. Okay. Not something that I revolve my life around. Okay. Oh, yeah. And I, and I would say, yeah, for us to do, and he gets into this, for us to be able to do all the things that we are commanded to do, we have to have, we have to be under authority. Mm-hmm. We have to have some type of accountability. Because like you said, without it, yeah. we go our own way. Yeah. Okay. Other thoughts on this, Rob? <clears throat> I think it, well, I think it boils down to the, the word itself. And so if, if you're in the word and in Christ, you would following the teaching and mm-hmm. which it calls for all of this and in the church yes you should you know be submissive to the pastor and the leadership but but it boils down I think to the word itself and if you don't know the word or you don't follow the word then that would be a pretty big thing yeah let me let me say something real quick and then Bob you got something um first Corinthians 11 makes an interesting point um God is the head of Christ the man is the head of every woman Christ is the head of the church I don't want to get into the middle part because that's the whole big topic of 1 Corinthians 11, but Christ is the head of the church, right? So ultimately the submission that's happening is to God's word, in obedience to Christ, ministered through pastors and other leaders. So I just want to clarify that point. Um, So when we say submitting to the church, I don't mean that you guys have to do everything that I say because ultimately you have to evaluate is what I'm saying driven from scripture and in line with what Jesus is saying. Um, Bob, you want to say something? So, when I first got saved, I didn't understand what church membership was. Okay. And somebody said to me, I didn't, I didn't understand baptism at first too, right? Sure. So there's a few things that 
you kind of have to be taught. Yeah. And so somebody has to take you under the wing and say, all right, this is what it looks like to be obedient. Mm -hmm. The challenge that I've had with different people in my life who have made professions of faith who aren't members of churches is there's not a verse that says you must join a local church and be a member. Right. There yeah. are things that you, you should do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, and you can only do them if you remember. However, there might be 70, 80% of the churches that will allow you to do, th do those things and not be a member. Right, yeah. Okay. So that, I, that's a, been a huge challenge. But to Rob's point, yes, if they are diligently seeking the Word, I think the Spirit is going to convict them and say, hey, you need to be under some type of some accountability, some type of uh, authority in your life spiritually, and this is the picture of doing that. Yeah. Okay. Good. Anything else on this one? Jonathan? Following up on what Bob was saying, given the examples of all the uh, churches in the New Testament, though, there certainly aren't any Christians wandering around without being a part of a church. Yeah. So why do we have so many people thinking that's normal today? What are some reasons for that? This idea of, I'm a Christian because I sit at home and watch Christian-y things or read Christian books or sometimes pray to God. A different kind of a culture nowadays. We have telephones and TV and we live lives kind of separated. Where back in those days, you know, you were in a small group. You walked around, you know, you didn't have a car. Right. You had a horse or a donkey maybe or something like that. But Good old days. For the most part, you were in a closed community. You knew pretty much most of the people, if not all the people in your community, unless there was a large group of people gathered together. But okay. Well, there was more of a intimate community, so you know, you were there, and so. You <laughs> all right. So limitations on travel and communication, and culturally, this idea of being isolated, because that's not true of every culture. Like, uh, if you go to I don't know Mexico or some of these other places. You go, and it's just normal for people to just show up, and you invite them in, and they hang out for four hours, right? That's not a typical thing, particularly in the North, particularly in the United States. And then philosophically, I think one of the big things we have to struggle with is this idea of, I, it's me against the world, I'm, I'm you know, this American individualism, you know, whatever kind of idea. Bob? Also, we talked about this before. In America in particular, it doesn't cost you anything to claim you're a Christian. Okay. But if we look at the early church, if they said, I'm a Christian, that could be their life. Yeah. And so there was two elements. There was, number one, I need to be to receive some type of protection and, and teaching and nourishment through the church itself. Yeah. But number two, if other people find out, I could be dead. Right. So it costs them something to not only participate with, but to receive protection from it doesn't do that today. Yeah, and, and, and so let's let's talk let's what does that look like in our culture? If I if I sit on my couch and watch something on TV, there's there's not a great deal of commitment in doing that, right? So it's easy for us in our society to turn in part because of all the COVID stuff, but this is not a new problem, to turn laziness into a virtue to turn isolation into some mark of spiritual maturity. Well, yeah, I don't go to church, but look at all these things that I do during the week. I, I know all this stuff. I, you know, I, I listen to so-and-so every day on the radio, you know, all this sort of thing. 
And we start to think that it is a, it's sufficient to just be involved in all these Krishna-y kind of things. But if we don't have an actual connection with God and his people through a local assembly, we don't have the sort of commitment that at the very least is, here's what the church is supposed to look like, that is then going to prepare us for the more intense commitment of, if persecution comes, am I still willing to be uh, uh, follow through? Yes. Yeah, so there's so there's there's levels of commitment. And as much as I don't like Rick Warren, I think he had a helpful idea of saying, here's people that show up occasionally, here's people that come regularly and they're members, here's people who are now like really involved in a lot of ministries of the church, and then here's people who are now involved in, in teaching other people and sort of bringing them on, right? So there's these stages of progress in the church. The challenge is getting from one to the other and just kind of thinking through all these things. All right, last little section here. Christian authority, he talks about the differences between Christian authority and other authorities. It also works by the tender, effective, and heart-changing power of the word and spirit, not by the manipulative powers of persuasion and coercion. So, although the church has authority, it's not exercised in the way where somebody walks in and is like, do this, do this, do this, because you got to listen to me. It's more along the lines of, servant leadership, humility, all those sorts of things. We'll talk more about that later if, if we need to, but we'll pause there for today. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths together. Uh, I pray that we would realize that church membership is not what we often think it to be, and that we would reorient our lives toward a more biblical understanding of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.